Recovery Elevator, episode 37. This is a perfect time to be in recovery. This is the best time to be in recovery. Welcome to RE. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. Get RE. Get real with yourself. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Paul. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year. One month and two weeks, which is awesome. On today's podcast, I've got Anthony Alvarado. He is the brainchild behind We All Rise Together. This is a program that he created, and he has spoken to over 70,000 kids in middle schools and high schools about alcohol prevention. It's about getting real, R-E-A-L, with alcohol. And he's got some great stuff to share. But before we get into today's podcast topic, which is relationships, sex, and dating in sobriety. Let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now, a quick preface before you spend any more precious moments in your day, seconds, one, two, three, four. I want to tell you right off the bat, if you're listening to this podcast episode thinking you're going to get dating tips from me, Paul Churchill, it's almost like you're trying to get stock tips from Bernie Madoff. It's just not a good idea. You are not going to get dating tips for myself because that's a topic that I don't really know much about. However, I do know a little bit about dating and sobriety, and there's been a lot of emails requesting this topic, so here you go. We've all heard the don't make any large life changes in your first year of sobriety, and getting into a relationship or maybe even exiting a relationship in the first year of sobriety constitutes just that. Bringing somebody else into your life on a physical and an emotional level is a huge change. And first off, when we're in early sobriety, we don't have much emotional capacity. We don't have much to contribute to a relationship in general. Yeah, so it's one of those things where you hear the old timers, the people with multiple years of sobriety. You got to say things enough times over and over. And I've heard it so many times. Don't get into a relationship before your first year of sobriety. With my sponsor, it was a little different. I've been sober for one year, one month, and two weeks, and it wasn't for me that I had to reach a year mark of sobriety. It was for me that I had to reach the ninth step. Now, back it up. When I first started working with my sponsor, he told me the stipulations of what would entail working with him, and I heard that thing, and I wanted to walk right out the room. Like, what? I can't get into a relationship till my ninth step? See you later. However, it was my ideas and my brilliant thinking that got me into that room with that sponsor. I decided to move forward with that sponsor. He's an amazing man who should be decorated in prizes and medals and things like that. And he's one of those recovery warriors who just keeps giving back. So I made the commitment, got outside my comfort zone. And we all know how enticing it is to say yes when we feel so lonely. Yes to that person of the opposite sex or same sex. It doesn't matter. Just say yes, because we're so lonely to that person who's reaching out. And in early sobriety, I think I was three months and the same thing happened at five months. I had to sit two girls down, two girls that I liked was attracted to them. And we went on, you know, and it, it almost was like an informal date. And then we hung out again. And then the third time I had to sit them down, obviously not at the same time. One came at like three months, five months after, but I was like, all right, let's have a chat. And I put it all out on the table. And at the end, I said, I can't get into a relationship. I know it sounds crazy. I made a commitment to a person called my sponsor that I can't get into a relationship to a certain point. They were normal drinkers. They said they understood. And they were really, really thankful. And the reaction was so cool of how they reacted. I'm thinking they're going to be like, all right, grab their coat and just walk right out of the door. But they're like, man, it's so cool that you opened up. With the first girl, it went really well. And, and she left and... It was amicable and she understood, you know, and the second girl, she told me to call her after I get to that step. But the third girl, I know I'm just bringing a third girl into the mix. The third girl I told this to, she didn't go away. So I told it to this one girl and the next day she texted me or called me. I don't remember back then, but I remember looking at my phone I'm like, what, what I, I, I thought I just told you the day before I'm an alcoholic. 
And A, I thought that would cause you to run for the hills already, but B, like you're, you're calling me back. So this other girl, she just didn't go away and we kept hanging out. But I was clear and saying, look, I can't get into a relationship. But I think one of the big reasons why they say don't get into a relationship when you're in early sobriety is because what can happen when it goes wrong? And most likely a lot of these relationships, when we're only grasping for something to make that lonely emptiness feeling go away, which normally was used with alcohol, those relationships, they usually don't go anywhere. With this girl that I was hanging out with, she actually moved away to a different part of the country to follow her dreams, her career, which is great, fantastic. For us, it didn't end in a bad breakup. It ended because the person had to leave and I was lonely. And I still miss this person, I really do. Man, even though there wasn't a bad breakup, there were moments where I really wanted a drink just to make that empty feeling go away. I even noticed in iTunes, there's a playlist that's called Most Played. I'm like, why are all of the Chicago love songs being added to that? Why is Casey and JoJo showing up to that? My heart was hurting bad after this girl left. And I put myself in a dangerous situation because had my recovery portfolio not had been as full as it is, I could have relapsed. Don't know if I would have, but I could have, but I didn't, and I'm excited I didn't. So all you ladies knocking at my door, that's an intended pause of silence because there were no knocks. You got to wait till I'm at the ninth step before I can get into a relationship. But yeah, this whole dating thing, this sex thing in sobriety, oh my gosh, it is so confusing. It's frustrating. It's scary. When I first got sober in 2010, I was like, okay, I'm never going to have sex again. All right. I mean, I couldn't even remember the last time that I had hooked up with a girl or met a girl at a bar while being sober. It was almost like I was starting from scratch. Like I was back as a freshman in high school. And the thought of that and the success rate that I had there, ooh, that was terrifying. So I remember after like two and a half months of sobriety, I was working at a restaurant and this girl left me her number on the, on the receipt. I went back to the server station where we refill iced teas and I looked at the number and I got real excited. I was like, ooh, a number. And I looked at the receipt. It said table seven. I looked up at table seven and I saw two girls. And right then, I didn't care which girl had left that number. I was not looking forward to calling that number. But I was in early sobriety and I was like, man, I guess we got to start somewhere, maybe. So I gave the girl a call. We hung out. And it was the most awkward, romantic evening, all nine seconds of it, that I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, and the next day was just like, man, is this what it's going to be like? But looking back on that scenario, I don't think all the alcohol in the world could have made that situation enjoyable, but it got much better in sobriety. And in the few and far in between times I have been in relationships and sobriety, I've been able to connect on a much more emotional level, shall I say, because A, I'm in the moment, and B, I'm not looking over that person's shoulder for a drink. I'm listening to the conversation. I'm not thinking about where the next drink is going to come from. And I'm not a relationship counselor, but paying attention to the girl who's talking to me is more conducive to a relationship than finding ways to sneak out the back door and get drunk, I think. And this whole alcoholic thing, it scares me every time I have to tell somebody who doesn't know about me. Because there is the social stigma. And those who run for the hills, those are the ones you don't want anyways. This thing is one of the quickest friends, family, and girlfriend filters or potential life partner filters that you could ever ask for. For example, I asked out this girl. And in 2015, a lot of this took place over text. And she goes, do you like beer? There's a new brewery that just opened up. And I got that text. I'm like, oh, shit. How do I respond to this? And within 10 seconds, I copied and pasted the link to the Recovery Elevator podcast and just sent it to her. That was it. It wasn't so much she ran for the hills. We had a good chat. We're still friends, but it didn't work out. She didn't waste my time. I didn't waste her time. It was really good to get that out of the way and fast. Oh, yeah. And I did hear about this new brewery that opened up. I got to drive past it every fucking day. And overall, the lifestyle that a sober person tends to leave are pretty attractive traits for females or anybody when they're seeking out somebody to perhaps start a family with. Most sober dads, they're better than drunk dads. Most sober people, their finances are more in line than drunk people. Okay, so here are six tips. And I got this from an article from ProTalk. You can check out the link at recoveryelevator.com, podcast episode 37. But here are six tips with dating in recovery. 
Number one, just like the Journey song, Don't Stop Believing, Don't Stop Your Recovery. You still got to keep your recovery portfolio full. Number two, you got to be honest about your recovery and fast. Waiting to the fourth or fifth date till you have that person wrapped around your finger to say, oh yeah, I can't stop drinking after I start. I'm an alcoholic. You might want to get that one out of the way sooner rather than later. Number three, have some solid sobriety time. What I mean by that is like at least six months or a year. I don't know if there's any set duration like a rule book out there, but it's not a good idea to get in a relationship in the first week. It's two weeks three weeks, a month, but we've all said it, you know, like I just need something to fill this empty void. Don't fill it with a potential mate. Number four, go 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. You got to take this thing slow. You're in no rush. Relationships kind of like alcoholism are progressive. They could get progressively better or they could get progressively worse. Don't rush it. Let it take its natural course. Can't rush your recovery. Number five, understand your priorities. And your priority number one would be sobriety. If there's a girl that gives you flack for choosing a meeting over her or maybe coffee with another alcoholic over her, you guys got to have a sit down chat or B, you got to go in separate ways. My priority with alcohol in terms of not drinking it comes with priority over everything in my life. The last one, don't date somebody who could potentially rock your routine. What I mean by that is if part of your routine in recovery is you always go to the same gym or the same meeting. Maybe don't date somebody in that meeting group. Maybe don't date somebody from that gym. Where if it does go bad, and say you are, you are at that length of one year of sobriety, it won't rock your world. You won't have to drastically change A, your relationship, and B, your habits, your routines. So those are six tips, not from myself, because if I gave you six tips in dating, they probably wouldn't work. And more appropriately, it should be titled, Six Things You Shouldn't Do If You Wanna Get a Girlfriend. And now let's hear from Anthony. Anthony, how are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, Recovery Elevator, you guys are in for a treat. I've got Anthony here. He is the co-founder of Rise Together. Now, Rise Together has educated over 70,000 people in Wisconsin. They've partnered with over 150 schools in the Midwest. And their mission to get out there is to educate the youth of today and let them understand both sides of the coin. So, Anthony... Thank you so much for joining us. How are you feeling today on this Monday? I'm feeling pretty awesome. And I, I can't, like, again, I can't thank you enough for having me on this interview to talk a little bit about Rise Together, maybe even share a little bit of my personal story. I think some of these things are, are so, so important. You know, my goal today is to really inspire others to, to live in hope and uh, not to give up wherever they're at in their life. And I think we are going to be able to talk about some really cool things just in and out of recovery since both of us have a little bit of our own backgrounds uh, to our own use. Yes, yes, and yes. And I mentioned a little bit about Rise Together, but talk to me. I'm going to let you explain it to our listeners. How did you get the idea for it? You founded it. How long has it been around? And, and what's, what's the main mission of it? Yeah, so Rise Together was something that we started just over two years ago. So it really hasn't been that long. It was on September 12th of 2013 and really today what it looks like is that we're a school-based program educational program where we have established ourselves to have one of the best educational seminars in the nation so we primarily present on topics of substance abuse and mental health awareness um, all over wisconsin and some other states as well but primarily here in our own backyard and we speak to middle schoolers and high schoolers for the majority. We also do a public presentation at night to speak to parents because we know the message of recovery and support needs to go home as well. But on occasion in the summer, we'll even speak in colleges, uh, prisons, um, other conferences, both locally and nationally, and really just taking the message of recovery to every level we possibly can. You and I both know that the United States and probably every state at this point is facing this addiction epidemic that we're in. And that's really how Rise Together was created. Um, me and another co-founder, my best friend, Douglas Darby, got started, yes, on September 12, 2013, but we both have been impacted by addiction on such a high level that it nearly took my life, it nearly took his life, and unfortunately, over the last seven years, we've seen many friends and family members be taken by the disease of addiction. And I've watched, even over the last six months, um, my parents only almost been taken by their addiction. I've had uh, family members pass in the last couple of years, and it's been a it's been a hardship. 
you know, at home for me personally, going through my own, um, you know, my own things over the last several years, seeing my family being torn apart, seeing other communities being torn apart and other families. I mean, man, I can't even tell you how heartbreaking it can be um, literally on a weekly basis. It's not uh, every other week we're seeing families either contact us online or right after our presentations just filled with tears and, and angst and this desire to get help, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where to turn to. Um, they look lost. They're begging for help, but unfortunately we live in a society where there just isn't as much help as, as there needs to be. You know, we are indeed an epidemic, but at the same time we're not treating it as one, and that's nobody's fault necessarily. I think there's a lot of stigma that surrounds addiction. So in part, the Rise Together message is to help break down that social stigma and really talk about the more positive aspects about being in recovery because that's where you can find hope. And I think that message can change our communities just one story to another. Anthony, I cannot wait to get into your story in just a moment, but I've got a couple questions about Rise Together. And number one is, what is it like with that social stigma when you stand in front of three, four, five hundred kids and they've got this glaze on their face? They, at, at that young age, they've seen the movies, right? How immediate, how the media portrays alcohol, and they have this social stigma. Are they responsive to it? What What are they like after the talk? Yeah, you know, that's funny because a lot of people ask that and. And to be honest with you, one thing I left out, we never planned on being public speakers or especially going to schools. And, and if, if somebody would have told me, if, you know, five, ten years back, like eventually you're going to be a motivational speaker and you're going to talk to middle school and high school students about drugs and alcohol. And I would probably, well, one, I was in active addiction and active use. So I would have just laughed and turned away. But I mean, honestly, even if I was sober at that point, I just, I can't even imagine doing that, you know, because you know how it is. You go into schools, you have maybe this similar type presentation before. Um, a lot of people have tried to successfully talk about this subject to high schoolers, and they just, they're non-responsive. They don't pay attention. They don't, they think it's a joke. It's, um, you know, this just say no message or this authority-based message. And we try to come in from a completely different perspective. I mean, to be honest with you, we leave our our hearts right on the stage. You know, we're completely transparent and honest. And we, we say, yes, this is how we've fallen. You know, this is what happened to us. We're not saying it's going to happen to you, but this is what did happen to us. And if anything, the walk away is if somebody needs help, you know, to ask for help for that very first time much earlier in their life, instead of waiting until they're 24 years old, their life is completely a mess and you're torn apart in tatters pretty much on your, on your own deathbed. You know, so the kids see that and then they see that we're more relatable, right? We kind of walk like them, talk like them, act like them. In some senses, you know, we're not an authority figure. They look up to us as their peers and kind of idolize us for that reason. You know, like we've been through it, right? We walk the walk and they see that and they're a lot more responsive. And in fact, we started to do a little bit of evidence-based research on our presentations just to see where we were. And about 92% or almost 100% of the kids that we've surveyed and said, yeah, I like the Rise Together presentation. And the majority of those students also stated that, you know, they're less likely to use drugs and alcohol after our public presentation, which is super awesome. And that's, that's showing some accomplishment, but we can also take it to the next level. You know, those kids are asking for help for the very first time, and they're coming out and sharing their own personal stories. And maybe it's not even their story, too. It might be somebody else's. You know, maybe it's a family member or a friend or, or something of that sort. So you're seeing this, like, social, economical change through a strong, powerful message of recovery. And that, my friend, is almost impossible to explain. But, yeah, they're paying attention, that's for sure. Anthony, I drank alcoholically my very first time drinking when I was age 13. And if I had seen a cat like you on stage warning me about what was to come down the pipeline, I don't know, man. Probably it, it, you can't play that game of like what if, but you've got to be changing a lot of lives out there, right? Yeah, I can't wait until the day. Like we do here, and this is one of the things that keeps us going. You know, I talked about how daunting it is to see this this addiction epidemic just tearing apart communities and families and ripping us from like our friends and our loved ones. But at the same time, like there's moments when that moment when you get off stage and you see that kid come up for the first time and, you know, maybe there's tears in his eyes or her eyes and, 
you know, they just, they'd come up and just like start puking out their own personal story, whether they're going through substance abuse issues or they're cutting or burning or whatever it might be. Maybe they have suicidal tendencies, uh, you know, all these different things like anxiety and depression. Either way, they're like, you know, I can relate to you or I know somebody that can relate to you, your story, or maybe some of the other team members that are on stage with me. Cause they have about six people that, that share their own personal story. And we all have different backgrounds. Whosever story it is that makes an impact on that person. You know, I've heard kids say things like, you know, you, you make me want to, you know, reach out for help. You make me want to give back to this community when I know it's needed most. You encourage me to be a better student. Or even teachers saying you encourage me to be a better teacher. Or parents saying you encourage me to be a better father and a better mother you know, and and be there for my children and for my family and inspire me when I was about to give up. You know, I've heard even professionals stand stronger in their career because, you know, they saw our message of hope and they believed in themselves to continue to carry on their own purpose and whatever it was to make a difference in their own family or their own community. And those those comments is what keeps us strong. Those are the things that that lift us up in our hardest times because it's not, it's not as if, because we do this, we're some like supreme being of any sort. We're just like everybody else. You know, we've been given this responsibility to speak to the public, to thousands of people every week, and I'm very grateful for that. But at the same time, it can be very difficult. So those kind comments on the way back just lets me know I can lay my head down and I can put a smile on my face knowing that we're truly making a difference. Yeah, and hang on one second here, Anthony. There was a word that kind of flew under the radar. You said it a couple times. It's the word epidemic. I have heard the word epidemic involved with words such as Ebola, malaria, polio, scurvy. There is an epidemic right now, an addiction epidemic. And I'm kind of being facetious as I say this, but tell us more about the addiction epidemic. Well, here, I can tell you uh, from a national standpoint, there's a public concern or alarm around many different substances, whether it's heroin, meth, and, you know, obviously alcohol and cigarettes is always up there because they kill more people than all those substances combined. But, you know, you're also looking at prescription drugs as a huge, huge public concern. Um, in fact, that's the largest concern that we have right now. And it's an epidemic in regards to how many lives are being lost. I know in the state of Wisconsin alone, between 2011 and 2013, we had nearly a 60% increase of um, opiate-based overdoses. And in fact, the AIDS Resource Center uh, recorded that Narcan, which helps save people from overdose, um, was used over 7,000 times. And that's just what was recorded. So it could be upwards towards, you know, 9,000, 10,000. But what was recorded was 7,000 uses of Narcan in the state of Wisconsin alone, little old Wisconsin, you know, right out of the Green Bay area. That's where I'm from. You know, you're seeing the small communities being impacted on such a level. Now, if you were to break that down, just here in this state alone, with the use of Narcan, just from opiate-based overdoses, nothing else, not alcohol, cigarettes, none of the other substances, that means we could have lost 20-plus people every day for an entire year. And on top of that, it has been recorded that the United States is losing 126 people per day, every day, in the United States for an entire year, that's over 4,000 people every single month, and that's thousands and thousands of people that are just being lost. Their lives are being taken by overdoses from whatever substances, whether it's a combination of things, it doesn't matter. It's just a lot, a lot of people are being torn apart by this disease of addiction, and yet that is impacting not only that person by themselves, but thousands of more people on top of that because it's impacting the families, the communities and everybody else around them. So at this point, nobody in the United States has not been impacted by addiction or substance abuse. Every single person, addiction does not discriminate, is impacted every single person, but yet we still don't talk about it as much as we should. It's not like there's this public outcry. I mean, if you took prescription drugs alone, we're losing 45 people per day every day just from prescription drugs, and those are being prescribed, you know, consistently. Do you know in the United States, we have roughly about 3% of the world's population, but yet we consume nearly, I think it's 87% of the world's prescription drugs, if not more. We have an opiate problem. We have a drug problem in the United States. We consume a majority of the drugs here in the United States and anywhere else in the world, and we only make up about 3% of the population. You tell me it's an epidemic. Yeah, I would classify epidemic as well with that. 
Anthony, let's get into the questions. I'm excited to hear about your background, your story. Number one, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. All right. Anthony, how long have you been sober? All right. So I first found recovery seven years ago. And over the last seven years, it definitely hasn't been easy. So I'm really proud to announce, though, that I've been completely clean sober from all drugs and alcohol for just coming up on three years. Nice. Congratulations. And next up, Anthony, give us a brief background on yourself, maybe your age, what you do for a living, hobbies, what you do for fun. Yeah, so um, I'm 31 years old. I have two beautiful children, one girl, one boy, uh, 10 and 12 years old. Actually, we just uh, got a chance to hang out this past weekend, which is really awesome. As I was telling you earlier that we're coming back from D.C., so I was out on the road for about a week because I primarily do this thing. I ride together uh, full-time, and it's really awesome to come home and spend time with my children. It's primarily what I do for hobbies, and then they keep me busy as a single parent. My son just finished up his year in Pop Warner football, and they finished up the season really well. And my daughter also had a volleyball tournament over the weekend, and they took first place in the tournament. So those are the situations that you're going to find me in, just spending some really awesome quality time with my kids as much as I possibly can. I do hit the road uh, throughout the month here and there, but other than that, I'm surrounded by friends, family, and my children. Now, Anthony, referencing the podcast title, Recovery Elevator, talk to me about your elevator. When did you decide to hit the button and get off the elevator? Describe your bottom. Uh, for me, you know, I was in active use for of heavy, heavy drugs, you know, illicit substances for about 10 years. So from 14 to 24 years old, I was using everything and anything, you know, alcohol was something for me that was kind of a, a catalyst to everything else. If I look back at it now, alcohol is probably the worst substance for me all across the board. It was the first substance I used and the last substance I used. It was also the substance that I used for the longest period of time. Alcohol for me opened up doors to places that I couldn't shut for a very long time. And I got involved with other substances such as prescription drugs, dabbled in a little bit of heroin, really got into cocaine and meth and ecstasy and some of those uh, types of substances. And Man, it doesn't really matter. I can label it all those things and and how much I did and and all the horror stories around it. But to be honest with you, it it took me quite some time to get to the age of uh, 24. And I was, I didn't even think I could get to the age of 25. You know, it already seemed like I've been living this life forever, this life of tragedy and despair. I mean, I didn't even recognize myself in the mirror. And I didn't have anything around myself at that time. And we're only talking about seven years ago. I mean, I was ruined physically and mentally and spiritually and socially. I was shot. I probably burned every single bridge I possibly could have. And I was broken. I mean, this addiction, this disease that I was carrying brought me to my knees. And I almost couldn't get up. You know, there was, I just didn't see no light. I didn't see it anywhere. You know, I didn't see it ahead of me, around me. Anyway, I had no hope. And when you're hopeless, you feel like you're at the bottom, right? And that's where you say at the end of your rope. And I remember it was back when I was, uh, it was a summer and I remember it was kind of a gloomy day, believe it or not. And I was ready to give up, you know, 24 years old, no job. felt like I had no friends. My family was shutting the door on me. At least it seemed like it. They didn't want me around. They didn't know what to do with me. I had, uh, my son who was uh, six years old at the time. And, you know, I, I remember he was, in my peripheral, you know, that day I was sitting on the back porch of my grandmother's house and I was smoking my last cigarette and I wanted to die like in the worst way because I figured it would make all the pain go away, you know, and make the pain stop. And I just didn't know where else to go. I wanted it all to end. And I remember seeing my son there that day and I couldn't even look at him, you know. Here is somebody I love and care about more than anything, but I couldn't because I was ashamed of who I became. You know, I would definitely want to be a father. And if anything else, I think I was putting my son through the very same thing my father put me through. And I was disgusted with myself. And I put my head down and I looked away. And that little boy walked over to me that day and he put his hands on my face. He picked my head up and he looked into my eyes and you could see all these tears welling up and falling down his cheeks. And he squeezed my cheeks and said, Dad, I love you, but don't die. You know, and at that moment, that, that crystal clear moment was like I had to do something different. I had to because he was right. Even at six years old, he didn't know anything about drugs or alcohol. 
but he knew his dad was dying. He could see it. And he wanted, he wanted love back from me. He wasn't getting that. I wasn't even around. You know, I was shoving him off in every other direction but in front of me. And, you know, something as simple as that, a small act of random kindness, just simply reaching out to me saying, hey, I love you. I care about you. I want you here. Something needs to change. His own little words, he was able to accomplish that today. And I brought him close and I hugged him and we were both crying. I picked him up and, you know, I muttered some words and I knew then and there, you know, I had to do something different. And did everything get easy from there? No, of course not. You're in active use for 10 years and, you know, you ripped every part of your life apart. You, you know, like I said, your relationships and everything else. I'm at a start over. I had to, you know, get on a different elevator, if you will, and had to take take the right way up. And I entered into treatment and I started to go to counseling and I took on other forms of therapy over the years and started taking confidence classes and dealing with self-esteem issues. And, you know, over the last seven years, like I said earlier, it hasn't been easy, but I know each and every day I can focus on what's important today. And those small attainable goals that I put in my life on a daily basis set me free from anything from the past. And I keep those kids close by my side and they help me stay accountable to my sobriety, yes, but I do do it for myself. And by the grace of God, I'm still sitting here today on this interview. Anthony, so if my math is correct, that was seven years ago. As you mentioned, you started your recovery. Seven minus four is three. So there were four years of, were you trying to get sober, you know, struggling with it, fighting? Tell me about those four years before you finally got three years of sobriety. Right. So, you know, throughout those years, maybe I'd go on for a year. Maybe it would be, you know, almost two years. You know, it's kind of matching up right around there. And I kept on going back to drinking. It was one of those things where I was like, all right, I quit. I quit all the prescription drugs. I quit smoking crack. I didn't, I'm not doing any cocaine. I you know, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm going back to school. I got my kids back. I'm, I'm in this active life. I have a job. You know, I'm starting to accomplish things. I have a relationship again. And I was like, you know, I mean, obviously it was those those wicked substances that were bringing me down. And it it's not the alcohol. I mean, what's the big deal? Everybody drinks in Wisconsin. I mean, it's so socially acceptable. It's always around. And, yeah, you know, I like to drink, down, right? You guys drink a lot. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Yeah, we're actually, Wisconsin residents are not allowed to enter other drinking competitions outside of the state. That's that's the word on the street, and I've seen that before, and it's it's insane how much we drink here. It's like it's like Ireland, but over here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, I thought I could drink, right? And I knew there was a lot of people even, there were times I went to counseling, and I'm like, well, if you think you're going to drink, it's, it's not it's not the right decision. And I was like guessing to prove them wrong. And I knew in the back of my head, it probably wasn't the best decision, but I started out slow. You know, I, maybe I only drink once a month. And then just like every other textbook story, it became maybe every other weekend. And maybe it was only every other Saturday. And then it was every Friday and Saturday. And then eventually it's, I'm hiding in the, in the bathroom, you know, slamming two, three beers. So, uh, you know, my kids and my wife at the time wouldn't know any difference or wouldn't recognize how much I truly was drinking and not coming home. And it just was that slippery slope, whether it took a year or it took, you know, a couple of months, that drinking just kept on bringing me down. And not until about three years ago, when I got my second DUI, I just accepted that I was completely powerless over any substance and decided that I'm just, I'm not going to use anything. And you know what? It was the best decision I've ever made in my life. I, I love being completely clean and sober. I'm healthy today. I can run around with my kids. I can do things that I've never been able to do. I'm accomplishing things in both my personal and professional careers, if you will, uh, that I didn't even think were possible. And I know that wouldn't have been possible if I wasn't completely clean and sober. Anthony, before you got your second DUI, did you ever put any measures or plans in places with your drinking for example, like I think you said it earlier, he's like, well, I'm only going to drink a couple times a month. I'm only going to drink this type of alcohol, no hard alcohol, only on Fridays. Anything like that that right. just ended up didn't work? Oh, yeah, all the time. I, when I first uh, got clean and sober, I was probably going in on just about, it's probably about a year and a half, two years, give or take. And uh, so I'm in that early recovery. You know, I got some, I got some time underneath my belt. I've I, got past the year and I was like I really like to enjoy like going out to eat and drinking a good glass of wine you know and I was with this awesome girl at the time and you know we just really enjoyed doing that you know it was really simple it was casual just maybe a couple glasses of wine and that was all it was but 
again, that couple of glasses of wine also before you know I'm getting a couple of glasses of wine and then I have a side of beer, you know, just just a glass of beer. Uh, maybe there's just amount of, maybe next time it's a couple of glasses of beer and then before you know it, I'm uh, a glass of wine and, and some hard liquor. You know, I always had some kind of plan in place, you know, and eventually no matter where I was going, I was drinking, I was doing something. In fact, I couldn't even, it seemed like I couldn't even function without having that idea. Like I would have to get messed up, just go have a good time. And that's just, that's not a, that's not a great way to live. No. I mean, no. let's be honest. Oh. No. And Anthony, I'm curious because I've, I'm just over a year of sobriety, but walk us through the timeline of your sobriety up to your three years, emotionally and physically. What was it like in the first 72 hours, the first six months, first year, year two, year three, what can I expect moving forward? Yeah. Well, it's different for everybody and it depends where you're at in your life. And it probably depends like how long you've been using and all those factors are going to come into play. So for me though, I can tell you that in the first 72 hours, of course, it was extremely excruciating when I first hit recovery because I was coming off a lot of different substances. Um, there wasn't any formal detox that I took. So coming off of prescription drugs and I dabbled in heroin and, you know, um, drank for many, many years and the cocaine and, and the crack and all that stuff, you know, combined on a quite consistent basis um, for many years, the detox was wicked, you know, horrid things that I don't really like to talk about too much, but you can imagine, you know, getting to the point where you're puking, you're throwing up and there's other things like diarrhea and all these different things and you're living your life in the bathroom and you can barely make it out of bed and you know you're sweating waking up having to change your clothes the sheets all these different things it felt like i was going insane you know to be honest with you i was like literally like almost pulling my hair out and, and screaming i just either wanted to get sleep and then i was sleeping too much and i couldn't hold any food down you know all those things you know the first 72 hours was horrid you know, and eventually and slowly but surely over the time, of course, as we got into, you know, the first week, you know, started to stabilize a little bit more, you know, I took on, you know, eating better and drinking a lot of fluids and all these things. And it, it slowly, progressively got better, you know, day by day. And it was, it was worth getting through that first 72 hours. And then getting up to that year, that was a huge accomplishment. And often you'll hear people warn, you know, other individuals in recovery at that first year, you might have to really assess where you're at. And, you know, I wish I would have done that, you know, the first time um, I started to drop out of some of the earlier support groups that I was in. And it's very much part of the reason why I went back to drinking. But I do know that even though it's been seven years, you know, what I can tell you, I'm still getting better. You know, like I'm not healed by any means. Like this is, this is going to be a process for the rest of my life. And I don't mind that. I think there's some really cool excitement in that because it gives me an opportunity to, you know, proceed and, and learn new things and learn uh, different forms of recovery. And if I were to give you advice, for example, I think, or anybody for that matter, yeah, the beginning is going to be a little difficult. And there's going to be times in your recovery, whether it's at the first year, the second year, third, and so on and so on, that maybe you'll think about going back. And that's not necessarily anything that's wrong with you. Um, of course, you've been in active addiction for many years of your life, and you're probably going to think about those times. But slowly but surely, as you get through and you start progressing forward, that thought will become less and less, and maybe even non non-existent at all. Mm. And that want, that desire to use again is going to become less because what's going to happen is your life is going to start being filled with other great things. Sure. Like for example, I do my work with Rise Together. You do this podcast. It's very rewarding. It helps keep us accountable. And it's not that other people have to do what we do, but we found our purpose. We found our way to get back and pay forward, for example, and that's helping us stay clean and sober. And I'm sure every other person will find to some degree a way to do that. And it might be something simple. Maybe it's just staying in recovery and finding new friends and getting better relationships with their loved ones and their family members. That's a way that they're just being a leader in their own family, in their own life. That's their way of giving back. It doesn't have to be complicated. But then you, you have this like new accountability in the senses of you have a new passion for life. That's where I find it, man, is I have a passion for life. I love the life that I live. Does it mean that it's perfect? No, I struggle all the time. Over the weekend, my tie rod snapped in my car and my front rim came off my car and I just pulled off the highway. Oh, you know, like I am just thankful that I wasn't still in the car. You know, I, I mean, I wasn't still on the highway. And so little things like that will come up. 
But it didn't, I didn't think for a moment just because that happened that I was going to go get messed up because I knew that wasn't going to do anything better. In fact, I would have made it 10 times worse. You know, I have good people around me. I have a good program and I have some great ways that I'm staying accountable. And you're going to find that throughout, throughout the first year and throughout the seventh year. It's just, it's going to change consistently and that's okay. Love it. Great stuff. Anthony, we have reached the rapid fire round. If we could answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Number one, we're going to go off the script right now. Since you're from Wisconsin, how much cheese do you eat? (laughs) I don't really eat that much cheese, but I do like it. Okay. (laughs) Number two, (laughs) what was your worst memory from drinking or drugging? Uh, Worst memory from, it would have to be drinking. It was about, um, I was, 17 years old, give or take, right around there. I was still in high school, and we got into an accident. And that accident, um, it was during winter, it was during a storm. We went into the ditch. I woke up, I my face smashed into the back of the seat. Luckily, we weren't hurt, you know, um, that much, but our car was buried in snow. We ended up uh, eventually, because we couldn't find anywhere to get a ride from, we were out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the country during a snowstorm. We ended up uh, giving a call to my, my parents and have them try find to find us. Long story short is um, we ended up almost dying in that vehicle because we all went back in the car because it was so cold. We turned the heater on. We didn't realize that the car was under snow and the exhaust came into the car and slowly poisoned us to the point where at the very last second, no life, it would have been another two minutes. I wouldn't be on this phone call today. My dad opened up the door. He said it was so intoxicating that he was almost puking because of the smell from the exhaust. Pulled us out, and we were non-responsive at all. He was literally slapping us as hard as he could to get us to wake up, and that was the scariest moment of my life. Wow. Next question. Anthony, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan in sobriety moving forward is keep on doing what I'm doing today. It might change in the future, sure, but... I'm really into more of a, uh, a holistic approach to recovery. So I put God in my life um, consistently on a daily basis. I'm constantly in prayer throughout the day. Um, throughout the afternoon, I, I pray at little moments where I'm grateful, ask for guidance and, you know, ask for some type of direction in my life. But I also get into, I'm really excited to get into a little bit more of uh, meditation and get back into physical fitness as well. I think these can be really great positive you know, things in your life or anybody for that matter. And it's really something that has helped me uh, stay on my path to recovery. Love it. Next question, Anthony, what's your favorite resource in recovery? My favorite resource in recovery right now is, is my spiritual health. Uh, My spiritual health is something that has been there for me throughout the entirety of my recovery. I find a lot of great peace within that and a lot of guidance within that. There's a better understanding of who I am and what my purpose is. And believing in that, believing in myself, and knowing that I'm not doing it alone and that God is by my side anytime I turn around. Anthony, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is something that I still live today is uh, small attainable goals on a daily basis. That's where you get back into the attitude one day at a time. It is truly that. I think for anything in our life, if you can accomplish, you know, the small attainable goals, whether it's maybe it's asking for help. Maybe it's staying in that treatment program. Maybe it's, uh, you know, finding a new path to recovery that helps revive your recovery when it's needed most, whatever it might be. Maybe it's uh, making that phone call to that job or, you know, just submitting that application, whatever is going to help and not make it worse. Um, I think just doing those small acts on a daily basis can get you to those big goals that you're looking to succeed in. It's never wrong to do the right thing. Anthony, we heard a little bit of your value bombs earlier, but what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in early recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Um, I think find a path to recovery that works for you and understand that it may change over time, and that's completely all right. You know, um, over time, throughout um, my recovery and throughout the teachings that I've you know taken on, I learned that it's really important to develop these long-term coping, you know, mechanisms and skills for life. Uh, for me, you know, meditation and physical fitness are just examples of additional approaches that I can have to my own recovery. And I encourage people to make it fun, make it exciting. You know, as long as it doesn't put you at risk and put you in danger, like just because you're clean and sober doesn't mean life is going to be 
shitty. It doesn't mean life is going to suck. I mean, we try to spit that message every time. You know, I go to concerts all the time still. I have good people around me to support me and make sure that I stay in sobriety. But I do things probably more than I did when I was in active use. I still go see live music. I still go get tattoos. I, I do my own thing. I'm my own person. Whatever it is for me, you know, I'm trying to enjoy life to its fullest to some extent. You know, maybe that's a little bit of a, a addictive personality, but at the same time, I'm not putting myself at risk. I know when I walk out that front door, I can put a smile on my face because I'm clean and sober today. So no matter how challenging it gets, no matter how difficult it seems at first or years in your recovery, reach out when you need help. Get guidance from others. Be open, honest, and willing to make a difference in your life. And no matter how difficult that is, find some things that you're really good at. Find a purpose. Find a passion in your life. Because with that passion, there's going to be days that are going to be very difficult, but that passion is going to get you to those times. So that's what I would do. I would encourage you to find that. Find who you really are. Don't worry about those substances. Live in sobriety. It can be awesome. Love it. Love it. And last up, before we finish the interview, Anthony, give us your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if line. (laughs) All right. So I was actually, I got a couple of funny ones just because I was actually reading through this magazine last night. There's a catalog where you could order all kinds of stuff. You could order like bed, bathroom supplies, all this different stuff. They call that Skymall. Yeah, right. So it was like Skymall. And I was looking through this magazine and I thought, I read the questions actually to this interview before I was looking through this magazine and I came up on this thing that you could buy and it's perfect for this situation. So you might be an alcoholic if you have to buy a globe bar. Now let me explain. This is a globe <laughs> yeah, that actually hides your alcohol inside the globe. It looks super awesome on the outside, but for $20 a month for 11 months, you can have your very own globe bar. You can hide all that alcohol you're looking to hide from the rest of your family. Like, that is ridiculous. Like, I don't even know why you'd want to buy that. It does look cool, but it looks cool by itself, like, just as a globe. <laughs> you know what I mean? But how, but, how um, big is it? How, could it hold, like, a 12-pack? How big is the globe? Because this Yeah, one, man, like, would... they had, in the picture, they had a full bar. Like, like, you could probably carry at least seven bottles of liquor down in the bottom base of this globe because it was a stand-up globe. Um, on a base and a supporting unit and everything. And then you could open the globe in half and probably stick another four or five bottles of liquor inside that globe. Goodness gracious. I think the underlying point there is that alcoholism and addiction are all over the world. That was was, was pretty lame. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, no. I I like the angle that you're going with because it's true, man. It's true. But, you know, as as funny as those things can be, it is is a concern that everybody should recognize. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of time before, you know, we, we have this addiction epidemic curve. But you really have to take a look at how our society's handling it, how we're conversating about it, you know, in both personal and professional environments, and see if we're actually supporting those that are looking to find recovery. I know today... There's going to be a lot of listeners that are, you know, checking this out and maybe they're early in recovery. They don't have any direction and maybe it's not talked about in their families. They don't want to talk to their friends about it. Um, But what I do know and what I'm finding out, even as I'm traveling across the United States speaking, is that there are more resources available that are even outside of the box. I'm going to small suburban communities all the time and they're like, we don't have any treatment. We don't have any options. But, you know, there's things like this that also can inspire you to continue to find those resources and help that you need. Like I listen to podcasts. I go and I read, you know, positive books, whether it's about recovery or just about life. I write, I, I try to play music. I'm not good at it, but I try to do those things and have those hobbies and those extracurricular activities and, and listen to other motivational people and other great people in recovery um, there's plenty of things out there, even fitness programs that are around recovery that you can take a look at or you can just make your own thing until you find, you know, it's not going to take away from the, maybe the treatment and therapy that you need. And that's definitely legit. Like if I didn't have treatment and if I had therapy, I wouldn't be on this call. Like that definitely helped me out and I needed that. But, um, you know, there's so many cool things that are happening in the recovery world and it's coming up to like today's age and it's so awesome to see. I mean, You have thousands and thousands of people in recovery that are uniting and saying, you know, we want to change the world. We want to change what's happening um, because we don't want our loved ones dying anymore. And how exciting is that? This is a perfect time to be in recovery. This is the best time to be in recovery. Things are really changing. And why not be a piece of that, you know, in your own personal life and for the nation and for the world, if you want to put it that way. Anthony, inspiring, motivational 
Thank you so much for joining us and helping me stay sober. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And same thing back at you and, and all the listeners out there. You know, these things help me stay accountable. I can't thank everyone, and including yourself, enough for putting me on this podcast today. And, and just, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. You might be an alcoholic if, and these come from Nikki out in California. Thanks again for compiling this. You might be an alcoholic if your breakfast wake-up is a screwdriver instead of a coffee. That one's actually from Nikki from Chatsworth. This one's from Rick in Santa Clarita. You might be an alcoholic when a good reason to drink is the grand opening of a matchbook. This one's from Chris from Dallas. You might be an alcoholic if you think you're not an alcoholic because only alcoholics go to meetings and you don't go to meetings. You might be an alcoholic if your idea of a balanced diet is a Budweiser in each hand. That's just a funny one found online. This one's from Neil in Valencia. You might be an alcoholic if your bar tab was twice your mortgage payment. Yikes. On a more serious note, you might be an alcoholic if you ever try to stop drinking, try to drink less, and you fail. You might be an alcoholic. That's from some good old AA literature. Recovery Elevator, some cool things are happening in this community. What I mean by that, our Recovery Elevator private accountability group on Facebook, we're almost to 200 members. I'm in there daily. There's videos. There's points of inspiration. There's stories. People helping other people stay sober. If we relapse, we don't beat each other up because we beat ourselves up. We're supportive. It's a great group. If you like this podcast, go to recoveryelevator.com. Help us keep this going. Make a donation. I don't like asking for money. I don't. However, there's been a couple people that have set up something where they do $5 a month. That is totally fine and really lets us get out there and do what we want to do. Recovery Elevator. You took the elevator down. Stop doing that dance. Hit the button. Get out. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.